You're listening to Real A Theology, a podcast that considers contemporary philosophy of religion from a naturalist or atheist perspective. And now we continue with part two of my conversation with Dr. Dustin Crummett. Switching gears here, um, I wanted to talk about uh, your paper on uh, divine hiddenness, um, called uh, or titled uh, "We Are Here to Help Each Other: uh, Religious Community, Divine Hiddenness, and the Responsibility Objection." Um, so, I think our, a lot of our listenership will be familiar with uh, the the uh, problem of divine hiddenness. Um, in short, it's a top-down approach uh, which argues from the concept of God being one of perfect love to the claim that no perfectly loving God exists. Uh, it does so by claiming that the perfectly loving God would make it the case that all persons who are not actively resisting God would be able to enter into relationship with God simply by trying. Um, this, according to Schellenberg, uh, means that such persons would believe in God. Um, he writes, uh, God for them would be like a light, however much the degree of its brightness may fluctuate remains on unless they close their eyes. And so you endorse a um, you endorse and expand on a response called the responsibility argument. This is obviously in response to the hiddenness argument. Uh, without kind of going into like the all the details here, could you kind of briefly summarize what the responsibility argument is in essence? Yeah. Um, so people maybe will notice like a, a theme in my tendency. And in, in the problem of evil case, I said, Maybe we should try to explain evil in terms of something having to do with creaturely responsibility and us bungling things and whatever. Yeah. Um, the responsibility argument is, is a similar move. It suggests, um, well, maybe, uh, you know, um, one thing that it's good for us to have responsibility for is investigating religious questions, figure, learning about God, helping bring other people into relationship with God, helping them develop their relationships with God. Um, and maybe the existence of hiddenness is because people botch that, you know, they, they, they do things that, um, you know, they promote anti-intellectualism, they blow the moral authority that they are entrusted with. They, you know, don't take seriously spiritual disciplines, acts of, you know, mercy that might allow, you know, all, all sorts of things. I mean, um, you know, not, not just, not just, you know, they didn't spend enough time developing arguments for the existence of God and teaching people about them or whatever. That might be part of it. But also, you know, all these, all these other things that are not that, but that affect people's relationship with God and ability to participate in religion and, you know, whether, whether religion seems credible to them or not. All that sort of stuff, too. And, uh, you know, I, I think... Um, it's kind of plausible, like internal to Christianity. It, I mean, it's actually like a Christian doctrine that uh, the church exists to like tell people about God and all that sort of right. stuff. Um, I think it's quite plausible that people, uh, like a lot of non-resistant non-belief, is the result of you know people doing bad stuff. Like the there's a, a historian, Alec Ryrie, who 
wrote a book I forget the name of, but he argues like a lot of the reason for the the rise of non-belief in the early modern period was like the church losing its moral authority because they were doing all sorts of terrible stuff. Um, and um, yeah, so maybe maybe there wouldn't be non-resistant non-belief, or maybe there would be a lot less if people did their jobs in this collective enterprise of learning about God, relating to God, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that's sort of what the what the view is. I kind of referred to this already. I mean, it's a, it's a kind of expansion uh, on a pre-existing uh, version of the argument. I believe it's uh, Swinburne and, and Dumsday. Um, so they kind of put this argument out in response to um, to Schellenberg, and then you're kind of taking that and expanding it. You argue in some ways an improvement uh, to their argument. Could you kind of uh, unpack the various ways in which you might think that this is an improvement or expands on their general concept? Yeah, so it, um, I mean, one one thing is, yeah, I mean, one of Schellenberg's criticisms is like, wait a minute, do we have the means to, to eliminate non-resistant non-belief? You know, I mean, we, you, you, and if you read Swinburne or Dumsday, I mean, they do talk a bit about other things like leading prayer groups, that sort of thing. But like, it seems like mostly what they're imagining happening is, well, we could like develop really good natural theological arguments that would convince everybody, you know. Everyone will be philosophers. <laughs> yeah, right. And it's just like, okay, well, how plausible is that, you know, that we're going to, going to, I mean, even if you had the really good, I mean, I do, I, I think I've invented some pretty good natural theological arguments, but, you know, they're really complicated and people disagree, people reasonably disagree about them, you know, whatever. Um, so, like, it's just pretty implausible to me that, like, that alone is would, would be able to, like, eliminate non-resistant non-belief, you know. Um, and of course, you know, philosophers are, of course, are going to think like, oh yeah, you know, if we just did philosophy hard enough, that would solve the problem. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, one, one thing I do is I put, and again, this isn't exactly a disagreement because they talk about some other things too, but I put more emphasis on these other things. I mean, I think ordinary people's moral beliefs, yeah, they are influenced by their, you know, their grasp of some version of teleological argument or whatever, but they're also influenced by, whether they feel God's presence in church and they feel like they see God in the lives of the people around them and, you know, are these people behaving well? And, uh, you know, am I feeling God's presence in the service? I mean, all sorts of stuff, right? That That's not just they sat down and read on guard and were convinced, but, um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that, like, think, realizing that means the scope of responsibility and, and like, capacity for action that we have here is is much greater than you would think if you thought of it purely as about like apologetics and philosophical arguments you know i think it's it's plausible that yeah there you know there are people who lost their religious belief because of the the sex scandal in the catholic church and you know had that not happened those people might might not have lost their religious beliefs and so that's one way in which in which people have harmed other people's ability to relate to god etc right um so you know, and yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's the main thing. I, I think I suggested some other other ways in which my argument was different too, but honestly, I don't remember what they are now. <laughs> I, I read the paper like eight or nine years ago. Um, yeah, I mean, I think one of the ways is that not only do you emphasize the ways in which people can be responsible as um, contributing to uh, an, an individual's spiritual growth, but 
also the fact that it can hinder their spiritual growth by yeah. uh, things that you've already kind of mentioned, you know, promoting anti-intellectualism, various things like that. Um, to me, uh, this appealing to this kind of thing, it seems like, at least in, in my reading of it, seems like it kind of kind of reduces down to a kind of uh, a free will defense in a way, um, as in you're appealing to the value of free will to the choice whether to promote these uh, goods or to, um, you know, hinder someone's spiritual um, uh, development. So I guess, am I right about that? Is, it, is this a kind of libertarian, an appeal to libertarian free will in that way? Uh, it doesn't have to be an appeal to libertarian free will, at least. Um, okay. So uh, you might think if you're, I mean, I guess the reason you might think compatibilism is incompatible with free will type theodicies is that you might think, well, like, wait a minute, if determinism is compatible with free will, why didn't God just determine us to always do the right thing? Right. Um, and uh, there are some people who argue actually compatibilists can run free will defenses because, you know, the most plausible compatibilist condition on freedom uh, will rule out you being free if like somebody else made it so that you do the thing or something, right? That would be right. like, even, even, even compatibilists want to say that, you know, there's like a neuroscientist uh, causing me to have certain desires with it, you know, something like that's not going to be free for me. Um, so it, it could be uh, that you could be a compatibilist and run the argument, I think. Um, it does require some sort of appeal to free will or at least to the value of, of agency or something like that. I mean, you could, you know, Dirk Paraboom doesn't believe in free will, but he still thinks there's like agency that matters in, in certain ways and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, so it's going to be some sort of appeal to the value of agency, but not not just to like the bare value of agency. It's not just like, oh, you made a free choice and that's really valuable, the fact that you made a free choice. But um, what I really wanted to appeal to in the paper was like other things that somehow uh, depend for their value in some way on agency, but are not merely the fact that there's agency. Um certain sorts of relationships that you can form through, uh, through, you know, mutual service, through helping other people in ways where you really do make a difference to their well-being. It's not like somebody else was going to jump in and, and help if you didn't. Or, you know. uh, those sorts of relationships, that kind of service, I think there's something valuable about that. You know, my, my relationship with my fiancé is valuable um in part because of you know the way that we've helped each other over time sometimes at cost to ourselves in ways that you know really did help the other person as as compared to what would have happened if we hadn't and uh you know that it's not just instrumentally valuable like that makes us feel better about each other though it does but like even you know if if we learned that like the world was created five minutes ago and none of that ever happened then even though we, you know, we have all the feelings that would still, I think, detract from, from the value in some way. Sure, um, sure. It, there, there wouldn't be like the real contribution of agency there. Um, so yeah. that's, that's what I want to appeal to. Now, of course you can think, well, is that worth it though? And that's, uh, you know, you could think that about what I was saying about the problem of evil too. Like, is, this, is that really valuable enough? Um, I think it can be quite valuable. And, um, 
one thought is if if you believe in an afterlife, which I actually think is like independently entailed by theism, even before we talk about the problem of evil. Um, so it's not just like an ad hoc posit here, but you know, it may be that like some of these things, some of the good things God can like make, you know, like those will endure, like the deep nature of the relationship that will endure, but like the bad thing will end. Um, and so, you know, you have to think not just about like at a time is like the, the suffering or the hiddenness or whatever, how does that compare in value to the, the enhanced relationship? But you have to think about how does the enhanced relationship that endures forever compare to, uh, the limited period of, of badness. Um, and that might, that might make it more plausible, um, to think that, you know, maybe, maybe the bad stuff can be outweighed by, by the good thing that, that you couldn't have had without at least the possibility of the bad. So I, I kind of want to maybe press a little bit on this, on this yeah, response yeah, yeah. to the hiddenness argument. So like, uh, what, what's being appealed to here is various goods. Um, so, you know, uh, encouraging people in their, in their spiritual growth uh, to learn God's reality, God's purposes, uh, having the right intentions to do such a thing, um, you know, encouraging people to enter into a relationship with God, uh, and that all these things are good things, encouraging this spiritual development and all that. Um, so I guess what I think Schellenberg would, would respond with to a claim like this is to say, well, none of these constitute reasons to shut himself off from relationship with these persons um, because all of these things can be accommodated within a, uh, you know, within a relationship with God within um, or can be accommodated without uh, allowing the existence of, um, you know, non-resistant non-believers. Um, so at least in, in with, with regard to Schellenberg's version, uh, that explicit version, I mean, obviously there, there are hiddenness arguments that are more, it's a broader, species of, or it's a broader genus of, uh, yeah. of argument than merely Schellenberg's, uh, formulation. But it would seem to me that this response wouldn't really, um, contact Schellenberg's argument. Do you have any kind of thoughts on that? Do you think that that is a correct yeah, diagnosis? Uh, of, uh... So, yeah, it's okay. So, I mean, one thing to say, this is not central to what you're saying, but one thing to say is, you know, on my view, maybe if everybody had always done the right thing, there never would have been any non-resistant non-belief. So in some sense, yeah, you could, you could get this, um, without any non-resistant non-belief, but there needs to be the like counterfactual dependence. You really made the difference. And if you hadn't, then mm. there would have been, um, and that means given that people don't always do the right thing, there's going to be non-resistant non-belief. Um, yeah. Could God, um, get all the same goods without allowing even for the possibility of non-resistant non-belief, uh, Maybe, I guess I'm kind of thinking like there are goods and there are goods. Um, so, I mean, okay. So like, here's one thing God could do. God could give us responsibility for like whether other people believe in Molinism or not. Uh, and like, that's the only thing, that's the only thing God does, right? Is, is give, leave it up to us whether we figure out the truth about whether Molinism is correct. Um, and like, that would be some responsibility. I, I guess it would, maybe you would feel like, you know, if somebody helped you figure out whether Molinism was correct, maybe you'd feel like, okay, they did me some kind of service, you know, our relationship's a little better now. Um, but it would be like a very trivial sort of responsibility. And so whatever value add it had would be very trivial. Um, and then the more responsibility God gives us, 
like the greater the potential value of, of the relationships that result in the acts of service and so forth. Um, but also like the greater the, the potential for something going seriously wrong. Um, and so, yeah, I say it has to be if probably if the responsibility is going to be really valuable, it has to be that we have responsibility, you know, that could have things go very wrong. Maybe it wouldn't necessarily have to be result in non-resistant non-belief, but something that would be equivalently bad or something. Um, and, you know, is there an exact right trade-off? I mean, I don't know. Um, like, is there like an optimal balance of like risk versus reward in terms of giving us responsibility? Maybe there's not. And I can just say, well, this is a reasonable one, maybe at least for all we know. Maybe there is, and maybe this is it. I don't know. I mean, how would you establish exactly what the optimal trade-off is? I have no idea. Um, I guess Schellenberg maybe won't think that that is satisfactory because he thinks there's something really highly privileged about non-resistant non-belief where um, God would like eliminate that almost at any cost. Or, and, and this is just like a conceptual truth about how God would behave, that God is just not going to allow that. God's always going to be open to relationship. Um, one thing to say is it may be that some sort of relationship is possible even in the presence of non-resistant non-belief. And this is not a thought that's original to me, but, you know, it could be, I mean, suppose I'm in, um, I'm in, uh, I'm in prison and I get some note that, that explains how to break out of prison or something from the next cell. And like, I think that actually this is just the jailers playing some trick on me. You know, I don't think the other, the, the, I don't think the person in the next cell really exists. I think it's just the jailers. Uh, but I do it and like I break out and then later on I meet this person. And I'm like, whoa, you were real. Um, I think there's some sense in which we had a relationship at that point, right? Um, even though uh, I, I didn't think that they were real. Though there was like some burgeoning, yeah, they did this act of service that is going to uh, affect our relationship after, after we meet each other and realize that we're real, right? Um, there might be some sort of relationship that you can have with God by relating to the good, by, you know, uh, praying, even if you think it's not not likely that anybody's hearing you, whatever. Uh, people have different views about how this might work, but there might be some sort of relationship you can have even in the absence of belief. And you might think, okay, but it would be better if you believe. Then I say, yeah, and then we have to say, well, you know, there has to be some real risk involved here. Yeah. Um, the other thing is, I think, um, you know, I mean, I, I, I think that, I mean, in fact, I lean towards some sort of universalism where everybody winds up with, uh, I mean, I lean pretty strongly towards some sort of universalism where everybody winds up with um, a relationship with God in the end. Uh, even if you're not a universalist, you might think, well, people who don't get a fair shot in this life will get some sort of other, other fair shot. And so... Uh, even if you think it's foreclosing the the possibility of relationship, it's not doing it forever. It's just doing it for like a, a brief period of time. Um, and that might make a difference. I mean, it, it seems very plausible that God will be open to relationship with everybody. Maybe less plausible that God will be open at every moment, regardless of other values at play or something like that, you know? Um if, I mean, you can imagine like, 
suppose you you know your spouse was lost at sea and you thought that they were dead so you don't believe that they're around anymore and then they show up in town but it's like if it, it, they like wait a day before they contact you and you wonder like why did they wait that day um you would you would want an explanation for why they waited the day but you also wouldn't think like there's no possible explanation right uh you know there could be some reason they had that would be justifying um uh even if it would be much harder if they just like never contacted you at all um so yeah i guess i don't know that was maybe a little bit rambling or something but i i think <laughs> no no i think it's I think there's a lot of interesting thoughts there. I mean, I think, I mean, you're referring to, uh, I mean, at least, at least your first um, kind of response was like referring to Cullison's paper about how you can have these kinds of relationships with people that you don't necessarily think exist. Um, yeah. And I think that uh, I, I don't buy that just primarily. I mean, part of the reason why Schellenberg is arguing for a meaningful conscious relationship um, for this is because of access to the divine nature and the goods and the constant learning and the constant, I mean, that's good for both the person themselves and it's good for, um, you know, the, the relationship its own sake is, is a good thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. and I think that with regard to, you know, possible, um, reasons why God might allow, uh, non-resistant non-belief if someone is, you know, screwing up, you know, <laughs> making their mistakes. I think that much like a, a parent, right? The, the, the choice isn't to um, leave home <laughs> and to uh, uh, somehow allow your child to think that you've abandoned them. Uh, rather, the choice is to, or rather the, the proper act of love in this case, I think, could be to um, stick with that child, maybe give them a little bit of room, uh, but kind of shepherd them toward a, a healthier and more mature approach to the relationship between you two. Um, and I think yeah. that's what kind of Schellenberg has in mind when he's saying that, like, um, you know, and it, with your story, you know, with regard to your spouse who's lost at sea or something, right? Um, yeah, they might not, <laughs> maybe they don't go the day of and, you know, immediately right when they get back, they go to your door, right? Like, uh, maybe there's some time, right? I mean, I think that's plausible in the, st in, in the human stories, right? But I think that with God, it, there is absolutely no effort uh, put toward, uh, there's no effort, there's no energy lost. There's no, there's nothing lost merely by God just saying, you know, giving uh, causally sufficient reasons to believe. And so I think that, like, none of these reasons seem to me like reasons why God would permit uh, non-resistant non-belief. Um, yeah. that said, I mean, I grant that they're all very intuitive. I think I just don't know that they necessarily interact with, um, Schellenberg's particular formation. Um, I think that Collison's response. Yeah. I think that, that, that worries me a little bit. I think, I mean, I will admit, I, I think that there's something to that response. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's something I have to think on more. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think it could be, I mean, you could imagine a parent, say, like letting one child affect, gi giving one child a, a, a chance to like help the other child learn something about you or something, right? Um, mm -hmm. uh, maybe you could even, if you, if you were a parent who was lost at sea and you have two adult children, maybe you would even give one child the chance to go tell the other one that, uh, that you, oh, no, you actually survived. 
And like, if they don't do it because they, they dislike the other one, maybe you would wait a while and give them a chance and you think, <laughs> oh, they're not going to do it. I'll go introduce myself. You wouldn't wait forever, but maybe you would wait for a while because that would be something that would be valuable for them to do. Valuable um, for the for the messenger, you mean? Yeah, well, valuable for, you know, valuable. Val- it could be valuable for them. Maybe it would be valuable for the other kid because the, the other sibling, you know, did something for them. Maybe it would help them get over their spat, deepen mm-hmm. their relationship. Valuable maybe for your relationship with them because they did it. Um, you know, I don't think that's totally wild. You wouldn't wait forever. But, you know, I think, well, God's not going to wait forever. Um, sure. At some point, at some point, he'll, you know. Yeah. And so I think the question would be, does that provide motivating reason for God to not provide that causally sufficient evidence, right? And I think that those kinds of reasons, those can be seen as, as like tokens of some more general type of good, like good of, of uh, you know, learning more about your parent um, in the rich ways that forming or uh, having a relationship with them uh, could grant. And so I think that those kinds of goods... Uh, maybe not those particular goods, but those the the good type to which it belongs uh, are perfectly accessible within not having um, non-resistant non-belief. But um, well, yeah, I don't know. I think those are interesting questions for sure. <laughs> uh, so some mm-hmm. of your more recent work gets to gets into philosophy of mind. Um, You've written, along with Brian Cutter, a paper titled Psychophysical Harmony, A New Argument for Theism. Um, So first things first, what is psychophysical harmony? I feel like, you know, I I asked you to to talk about this, but it is, it's such a complicated argument. Maybe, maybe we're not even going to be able to get to it. But yes, I I encourage people, um, if what I say doesn't make any sense, I encourage people to go read the paper. And then I've also done some full interviews dedicated right, just to right. this on uh, Emerson Green's journal and capturing Christianity and so forth. But um, psychophysical harmony is uh, basically just the fact that our mental states are related to our bodily states in uh, ways that are appropriate, that make sense. So um, one kind we talk about is hedonic harmony. Uh, you, um, you, you know, you feel pain and then you don't do the thing again, right? You feel pleasure and then you're attracted. So you have a a conscious state that provides you with a reason. And then sure enough, behaviorally, you are disposed to act in accordance with the reason in the vast majority of cases. Um, Or, uh, you know, I experience uh, a, a black block in my visual field and I say, I'm experiencing a black block in my visual field. So what I report matches up with my conscious experience. Or um, some people believe in what's called cognitive phenomenology. They, they believe that there are, there's something that's like to have a belief or to have a desire. And uh, if you believe that, then uh, again, you know, the phenomenology of my beliefs and desires matches up with my behavior in, in ways that they can be explained. My behavior can be explained via appeal to belief, desire, psychology, right? So, uh, you know, I, I believe that I can make an example by holding up my phone and I desire to give an example. And so I hold up my phone and, you know, sure enough, my behavior is makes sense in light of my conscious state. Right. Right. Um, so that's what psychophysical harmony is. Um, it's easiest to see why that's weird 
if we assume dualism and epiphenomenalism. It turns out you don't have to assume either of these, but if you assume dualism and epiphenomenalism, so people like David Chalmers have been sympathetic to this sort of view on which conscious states are not reducible to physical states, um, but uh, so they're like non-physical states that are associated with you. And they're causally impotent. The, the physical is causally closed, right? What, ha- what happens in your brain is just the result of the laws of nature. So there are these non-physical conscious states you have, but they don't cause you to do anything, right? They're kind of free-floating along for the ride in parallel. Um, and of course, if you hold that, then psychophysical harmony immediately becomes extremely mysterious. Because you can imagine if the psychophysical laws have been different, you know, what if, say, like the, the non-physical pain state what if it occurred in the pursuit behavior adu- inducing ne- neurological state, right? Uh, and vice versa. Well, then you would be going around doing the opposite of what you had reason to do. Or suppose just the psychophysical laws just associated like warm bathwater phenomenology with every state. Then you would be totally messed up, right? I would still say there's this black thing in my visual field, but really the only thing I'm feeling is like warm bathwater feeling. Or, you know, again, like, you know, it could be that my beliefs and the belief and desire uh, uh, phenomenology was absent and I would do the same thing. Or it could be that it was totally flipped around and I would do the same thing. And so mainstream philosophers of mind who have talked about this, um, you know, and that includes people like David Chalmers and Hedda Hassel-Morch and Adam Potts and so on. Sometimes you'll find people like like Morch or, or Potts actually kind of offhandedly saying like, this is very weird. Um, of course, you could solve the problem if you believed in a benevolent deity, right? Because then God could make sure that things were arranged in the right way. Um, and then they always kind of laugh it off. They say, but of course, that you know that doesn't make any sense because of the problem of evil or whatever. Um, so uh, I, I guess I, I, I invented this argument when I was an undergraduate, and then I never did anything about it. Um, and then I realized that other people were talking about this psychophysical harmony problem. And even, you know, they sometimes they say like, ah, God could solve it. Um, and uh, so, that, I mean, I invented this as an argument for theism. Um, and then I talked to Brian Cutter, my co-author, and he had thought about the same thing. Ah, this could be an argument for theism. So uh, I sort of invented it as an argument for theism. I think chronologically I was the first. I wasn't the first to say it in print because other people had said it and kind of laughed it off. But Brian and I are the first ones to talk about it in, in print and not laugh it off. Right. We actually take seriously the idea that this could be an argument for theism and defend that. Um, so that's what it is. Now, you know, you might not be a dualist and an epiphenomenalist, right? And then you think, what's the problem? And what we argue in the paper is that um, most of the leading views in philosophy of mind, this problem reoccurs, uh, including the most popular physicalist view, which is a posteriori physicalism mm-hmm. or, or type B physicalism. Um, the, the only... The only view where this problem doesn't reoccur, we say, is uh, what's called type A physicalism or a priori physicalism, on which there's actually supposed to be like a conceptual connection between physical states and mental states. Um, and that we say is just, it, we, we don't think that's plausible. Yeah. So we think all the all the plausible views, this problem reoccurs. So Interesting. Yeah, that's, that is interesting. Um, like how would like, I don't know, like Resilient Monism, in what ways would it affect it, I guess? Yeah, so Russellian monism, I guess the idea is is something like, uh, I mean, it, it's a kind of panpsychist or proto-panpsychist yeah, view yeah. Of, of a sort, um, where like the the intrinsic nature of matter is is like mm. given by consciousness, 
And then what, what science is doing, the third person stuff, that's all like how the things relate to each other, right? So those are external relational facts. And then like what is actually being related, that is given by, by the, the mm-hmm. consciousness. Um, and uh, one benefit of Russellian monism over, say, physicalism is that it's supposed to be able to uh, get the same judgments that dualists get in some of the major dualist arguments. So like some of the major arguments for dualism are things like, couldn't there be philosophical zombies? Couldn't there be beings that were physically just like us, but there wasn't any consciousness? And that shows that consciousness has to be this other thing, right, over and above the physical. Or couldn't there be beings that were inverted uh, like I was right. talking about a minute ago, like beings that were physically just like us, but their their mental states were related in some different way to their physical states um, and and so forth. And uh, Russellian monists will say, yeah, we agree. And th- those arguments are good reasons to reject physicalism, right? Russellian monists want to reject yeah. ordinary physicalism. Um, so we agree that with the dualist, though, that shows physicalism is wrong, but we can also account for that because we can say you could have the same relational properties while flipping around um, the, uh, the, the like intrinsic natures, right? Um, there could be a world where, uh, you know, you had, um, say, a, a person with inverted qualia because you could have the same structure the same relational structure but the intrinsic natures of the matter was different uh and so there were different conscious experiences associated with things um and that uh opens up all the same problems we say that the epiphenomenous dualist faces because you could then have inverts and zombies and people with weird phenomenology and whatever and that's a strength of the view insofar as yeah it does seem like you really could have that and that shows that physicalism is wrong but then it's a weakness of the view insofar as, oh, this opens up the harmony problem because how is it if all you you could have same physical structure and different pattern of conscious experience, how is it that we wound up with these things matching in this way? Um, and so the Adam Potts has a, a paper about this, actually, where he argues that the, the problem re-arises for Russellian monism. Kind of returning back to philosophy of religion in general. In a series of posts on uh, capturing Christianity, you kind of constructed a cumulative case for theism, or for Christianity, rather. You you employ um, uh, fine-tuning, beauty, moral knowledge, miracles, and arguments for substance dualism. So that was a few years ago. Uh, Would this argument that we just discussed, would that replace one of these? Like if you had to keep that same, if you had to keep the number the same, would there be other things that you would change in the last few years that you've kind of thought about this? Yeah, if I had to keep the number the same, um, of course, you could always just increase the number. Able. Yeah, so I, I wanted, I, if I recall correctly, I wanted it to be kind of an argument from dualism about consciousness. Um, so, you know, it, it, I do argue for substance dualism, but I think you could run the argument that I gave it there on some form of property dualism mm-hmm. as well. Um, but yeah, I, I think the argument from psychophysical harmony, I mean, I do think the arguments that I gave there was good, but I, I think the argument from psychophysical harmony <clears throat> is is significantly more powerful than the argument from consciousness that I gave there. Um, and so, yeah, I, I would probably sub, sub that in. Um, unless, again, I was worried about not being able to explain it correctly within the limits of the blog posts or something. Sure, sure. Oh, and I should also say you had... in 
you had also included uh, the intrinsic probability of theism in there as well. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, I think those arguments are all pretty good. I think the beauty stuff I also talked a bit about just the fact that like there are intelligible and discoverable natural laws in general. Um, yeah. I mean, if I would, if I would expand it, maybe I would include some version of the cosmological argument, maybe some argument from contingency or something like that. I've never been a big fan of the Kalam argument, yeah. but uh, yeah, I would do some things differently, but the, the overall, the overall case would look similar except with the update for psychophysical harmony. So I don't know. That could be that could be reassuring, or you know, on the one hand, I haven't changed my mind, but on the other hand, oh, I had you know, I, my views are stable over time. Maybe that means I got the right. <laughs> there you go. First there's time. there's harmony there. Well, speaking of Kalam, you've also been uh, critical of uh, another argument of, of William Lane Craig's, uh, the moral argument uh, for theism. Uh, despite its like wide popularity among apologists, um, it doesn't seem to hold that much weight with actual like philosophers. Um, what do you think are some of like the main uh, problems with with uh, that particular formation of the moral argument? I know that you forward that you know the moral knowledge argument that we just uh, referenced, um, and I think that in in many ways that's just a superior argument. Um, but what do you think are the biggest vulnerabilities of the the more ontological version of uh, moral argument? Yeah, I guess I mean part of the issue is that particularly in, in popular presentations given by people other than William Lane Craig or sometimes in William Lane, by, by William Lane Craig maybe when he's just rattling off a bunch of arguments in a debate or something. Um, there's often very little defense of the claim that objective morality can't exist without God. Um, and that, uh, I mean, first of all, that needs a huge amount of defense because there, there are many different proposals for how that could be true and how morality could have the properties we intuitively think it does, even if God doesn't exist. Um, and in fact, I, I don't think that it is true uh, that objective morality couldn't exist without God. I mean, maybe it's true trivially because God necessarily exists or something, but I don't think that there's any essential dependence relation there of the sort that you would need for the argument to work. Um, you know, why, why is it wrong for me to like do something really horrible, uh, to Apollo the cat, uh, just cause he like meows during my interview or something. Um, <laughs> I, I, you, you, you like a sufficient explanation of that can appeal to me and Apollo and, you know, his interests and our relationship and the fact that he, you know, I mean, he can't really make a claim on me because he's not a, a person, but, it, you know, morally speaking, he, you know, there's sort of standing to make claims on me. And, you know, it doesn't, it's not clear to me why you need to bring God into it. And in fact, that seems like it makes the explanation worse. If you say, no, it's nothing just to do with us. You also need right. a divine command, not to, you know, no, that that's like the, the wrong sort of explanation. That's not it at all. Um, there are other, there are other arguments against this sort of view. I mean, one one thing is um you know divine command theory you have like the what if god gave horrible commands problem uh would that make them okay and divine command theorists want to say usually well god couldn't give horrible commands because that's not consistent with his nature um but like mark murphy points out that, that now there's this kind of weird situation where like the natural facts they do compel God, like presumably 
the reason God would never issue the command is because there's some decisive reason for him not to issue the command, right? I mean, his nature is not just arbitrary. Um, so it, it looks like the natural facts sort of provide God with a decisive reason to like issue the command that I shouldn't torture Apollo, but they don't provide me with a decisive reason not to torture Apollo. Like I need the, the command to, to have that. Yeah. Um, and like, that's weird. Like, why do they have more purchase on God than they have on me? If anything, you would think God's supposed to be sovereign. He should have more freedom or something. Um, so that, that's a little argument. I think that's in, not in God's own ethics, but in the previous book on God and morality that Mark Murphy wrote. But, um, yeah, I, I just, I, I, yeah, I think that the explanation is actually worse than some explanations that don't essentially appeal to God. And I certainly don't think that it's been shown um, that all the all the non-theistic theories fail or probably fail or can't account for some important feature of morality or something in the way that you would really need for this argument to be a convincing argument. Well, we spoke a little bit about suffering and how the afterlife might play a role in that. Uh, this kind of gets into stuff, issues of um, compensation versus like defeat or various different approaches to dealing with evils in that way. I, so I've been getting more into Marilyn Cord Adams' work on these issues in particular. Uh, could you talk a bit about who she was and um, what her major contributions were to uh, philosophy of religion? Yeah, so I, you know, I was just a grad student and I met her incidentally a number of times at conferences and things. So I, I didn't know her, you know, as well as a lot of people mm -hmm. did. Um, but yeah, I mean, she was a very impressive person. She was a, a philosopher and an Episcopal priest, and she was a philosopher at Yale and Oxford and University of North Carolina, you know, a lot of impressive places. Um, she she overcame a lot of sexism in the course of getting to be an Episcopal priest. Um, she uh, she actually, I think she went through kind of like a, an atheist phase when she was a teenager and then converted back. Uh, um, but... Uh, yeah, she she was very um, I mean, she was very committed to uh, social justice and certain ethical positions. Um, she played a, a big role, in, like supporting um, the, the recognition of gay marriage in the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Church fought for gay rights that that very grew early on. Yeah, um, partly because I, I think the the genesis of that was that she was um, ministering to people in Los Angeles, gay people in Los Angeles um, in the 80s when the, the first major AIDS outbreak happened um, and, you know, had firsthand experience of seeing people who are dying with their partners supporting them and uh, thought like, you know, this, this can't, like the, the traditional view just has to be wrong, right? Um, these aren't lifestyles. These are relationships between people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And, and, you know, she was politically engaged in a lot of other ways and, uh, you know, was, was really someone who was always, always a fighter, I think. And, and, uh, you know, um, also was, was willing to, you know, like I, I was a, a graduate student and, you know, in my second year, maybe, and gave this paper that was critical of her at a conference where she was the keynote speaker. Uh, this, this paper later on became, no, maybe this was my first year. Yeah. But anyway, this, this paper later became this paper called Suffer Centered Requirements, 
own theodicy and all things considered harm. Um, and she afterwards, she said like, yeah, I may not have gotten quite all that right. You know, she, she was very willing, even though she was this famous philosopher and, uh, you know, had dealt with crap from people all her life. And, and so, you know, was, was, and she was also willing to like, listen to, to criticism from, you know, some random person uh, with no credentials. And, and that's part of actually why I, I wound up working that paper into a, a full paper that got published because I got positive feedback from her and thought, okay, maybe there's something here. Um, yeah. So she, um, she was a really impressive person and um, also a very impressive philosopher. I mean, she, she wrote earlier in her career about history of philosophy, wrote this very famous book on William of Ockham um, and then turned more towards uh more practically oriented things. She she wrote a book called um, Horrendous Evils and the Goodness of God, which is about the problem of evil. Um, and I, I think, I mean, there are a lot of things in that book that I don't agree with, but um, she clearly like understood the problem in a way that sometimes you read stuff about the problem of evil and it seems sort of glib and, mm-hmm. you know, the person doesn't really get it. The person is approaching this as a puzzle, but it's not you know, it's not real to them. Um, you can tell that she, yeah. yeah, you can tell that she definitely, it was real to her. And that's, I think probably partly because of adversity that she faced and then partly because of her experiences as a priest, seeing other people go through really horrible things. Um, so yeah, her, her views, again, I didn't agree with them, but they always seemed like morally credible to me in a way that some, some people writing don't, um, yeah, and then she did some other stuff. I mean, she wrote a book about Christology, and um, yeah, she she didn't know what karaoke was. I, I learned because I was at a a conference, and uh, somebody said they were going to do karaoke, and she was like, "What is that?" And I explained <laughs> what karaoke is, and she was just like, "Well, wow, people do all sorts of things these days, you know." Like she, <laughs> I don't know. Again, maybe she just spent all her time reading medieval thinkers never never encounter I, I, yeah i don't know how she didn't know about karaoke maybe she maybe she was just putting on a, a show i don't know <laughs> well she missed out on one of the great goods of life the one last question uh just kind of a grab bag thing here what are some of your favorite articles like name one or two of your favorite articles or books uh this could be for any reason inventiveness creativity humor um or groundbreakingness, like what are your what are just some of your favorites? Maybe lesser known uh, ones. Yeah. Uh, let's see, lesser known ones. Um, I, I guess none of these are lesser known ones. I mean, one of one of them is the horrendous evils and the goodness of God book that I mentioned. A, a bit ago right. Yeah. From Marilyn Adams. Um, yeah, that's an excellent book. Yeah, I think you would have to put uh, up there. Um, Swinburne's uh, The Existence of God and uh, The Resurrection of God Incarnate, whatever the other one is called. Um, the Those, again, there are many things in those books that I disagree with, but I think he basically gets the methodology right. Mm. Um, and so this kind of systematic attempt to develop things using the right methodology is very fruitful, even when um, some of the specifics I don't agree with. 
Two articles in particular from the Blackwell Companion to Natural Theology, Robin Collins' article on fine-tuning and Alexander Proust's article on the, uh, the contingency argument. Yes. Um, both of those are very good. Um, Draper's, Draper's famous article on the problem of evil uh, is up there. Um, I think, I don't, you know, some of, some of my favorite articles are ones that I've written, but I don't want to be gauche. <laughs> If you appreciate the content and tone of what Real Atheology has to offer, please consider writing a review on iTunes or sharing an episode on social media. We also have a Patreon to which you can make a small recurring donation per episode in support of the show. Music is from the Chicago-based band Casserole. We would also like to thank our patrons, Aiden Armstrong, Jason, Robin Willems, Ed Atkinson, Kashi Samara Rira, Kim Bushkowski, Anthony Lawson, Jeffrey Rubinoff, Brandon McCleary. <laughs>